Welcome back to Trials and Tribulations. Today we're going to talk about something that is evolving within the practice of law, and that is the idea that a non-lawyer or investor can invest in and own a portion of a law firm, which in most states or in all states has been considered unethical and impermissible, but recently in Arizona has been permitted and other states are deciding whether or not they should allow this. Admittedly, we're talking about this topic. In no way am I an expert on it, and I don't know the specifics of every detail of the legal requirements in the state of Arizona. But for me, as somebody who practiced law, it just seems to be inherently conflicting to allow for some outside investor who has their eye on profit and on cash flow and on things that have nothing to do with client representation to be able to take a financial position in a law firm. What yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's... Just um, I can see in very, very particular areas areas of practice how it could be beneficial. In particular, mass torts, where I think that it's um, it's taken off and there's a lot of focus on that. But I think that having that excessive commercialization of a law practice interferes with the sanctity of the relationship between a lawyer and his or her client. And I always come back full circle to that point when I analyze the situation. I mean, you and I, we have, we have one foot in law, one foot in business, one foot in insurance, one foot in finance. So I think we're in a unique position to really understand the influence that outside investors and outside counterparties can have in a business. And we also understand how delicate the relationship is between an attorney and his or her client, and how much that confidentiality and privilege matters, and why these traditions matter, and why certain things have been deemed unethical for centuries now. And I understand the pressure intimately on attorneys to keep up with the commercialization of the practice of law, and to cope with the needs for for financing, to cope with the needs to grow in a competitive environment. But I think in most, if not Almost all situations, this is a step too far. Yeah, I mean, so there's no problem with a lawyer getting a loan, getting financing. That's that's totally permissible. But the idea that some third party that is not an attorney, that has no skin in the game on the case itself, isn't actually representing the client, could influence the decision-making of that lawyer just seems totally off base to me. When I think about our own business at Idea Financial or Level-esque, in those businesses, we have a responsibility to return shareholder value. At the end of the day, everything that we do has to focus on returning as great of a value as we can to our shareholders. That's our responsibility. That's our obligation because they are investors in our company. Lawyers' primary and only responsibility should be to deliver the best value to their client. If in any situation the best value or the best representation to their client conflicts with returning the best return to their shareholders, which direction do you go? Where is your obligation at that point? That's the crux of the issue. And that seems extremely problematic to me. And again, I think that one of the things that you and I both know, maybe more than others, are the difficulties, because we provide financing to lawyers, the difficulties that lawyers sometimes have in 
either getting access to money or getting access to enough money to, to be able to finance the expensive nature of the litigation. So I get why they would want to do this and why they would want to support it. But if you're taking a view higher up, 35,000 foot view, it just seems like you're you're putting yourself into a very, very bad ethical situation if you partner with somebody who does no who has no impact on the actual representation themselves. That's true, or doesn't understand the nuances. You know, the lawyer's obligation is to the client and to the client only. And the the outcome of the case, the best outcome of the case, you can't always quantify that in dollars and cents. It's much more nuanced than that, especially in personal injury cases. We're dealing with human beings and families. And again, the best outcome is not always the highest recovery. And to get to the highest recovery might entail a lot of risks and a lot of commitments that the client isn't necessarily willing to take or it's not the best thing for the client to be doing. Um, There's a lot of intricacies that go into evaluating the best outcome for your client. And by bringing in non-lawyer owners of the firm, I think that those waters can get very muddied. And there's a real solid reason why most states, except all states except for Arizona, I guess D.C., um, through, I just learned somehow, you know, has been allowing this kind of structure for a while. But again, um, the Arizona change has been a sea change. And, you know, both of us share the same opinion. That said, it is interesting to observe what's going on in Arizona. It's a bit of a, a Petri dish, so to speak. Um, and... I think that um, the people who are most interested in pursuing these kinds of structures are part of a, a, almost a sub-segment of the legal industry. And that, that's a whole other topic for us to discuss. You're talking about mass is, tort? Yeah, which I think is fascinating. And, you know, the truth of the matter is for, for mass tort litigation, I, I can see why this would, structure would work. You know, and I, and I understand the reasons why. Like, when you're dealing with mass tort you're dealing with the representation of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of clients. In a consolidated way. Right. And everybody's outcome is dependent upon bellwether cases. And Mm -hmm. it could be extraordinarily, extraordinarily expensive. And I understand the idea in, in, in investing in some of those types of outcomes. The problem is that you can't, there's no way that I can see to limit it to just mass tort. And when you start allowing it, it's that whole, for lack of better terms, slippery slope argument. Yeah. Because then you have the run-of-the-mill medical malpractice case or wrongful death case where a, an investor has provided some money. So I guess the, the expectation could be that they have some influence on the outcome. Mm-hmm. But if the client wants a certain outcome, that's the only thing that should matter. That It's their decision. It's their case. So when you start bringing in a third party that is a you know sort of a, an unknown or you know a, a faceless person in the room to the client – and they have an influence, you're going to create a conflict that's going to be very difficult to, to, to deal with. I agree. Let's talk about, let's take a step back, though, and talk about the economics involved here and what would motivate uh, a lawyer or a law firm to want this kind of arrangement over uh, a more traditional borrowing sort of relationship. And, and there's a lot to dissect there. But what I, what I think is interesting is and, and and I don't know this. I'm just putting myself in the shoes of other law firm owners. An issue that you and I have discussed a lot that 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 faces attorneys is that it's very difficult 
as a law firm owner to build enterprise value in the law firm. It's nearly impossible. I, I mean, in my experience, I can look back to several firms that I've worked for or just have known in our area, and some of the founding partners have been able to create enterprise value and, and eventually sell their firm, whether it's to some of the junior partners or to sell the practice to a larger law firm. But it's pretty rare, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think that there's a lot of lawyers, and maybe they're misguided or don't fully um, see all the angles, but who are hoping that this might be a way for them to create enterprise value in their practices. And when I think about it from that lens, I think about it from the lens of, of medical doctors uh, who you know, typically, let's start from the 60s, 70s, going into the 80s, were operating in private practices. And little by little, a lot of those private practices were consolidated and bought up by larger companies. And you have lawyers, uh, I'm sorry, doctors who were technicians, practitioners, all of a sudden went from controlling their practice to being employees. And I see that as a good analogy when you look at this type of situation of something that could go wrong if, uh, if, if, if several partners decide to bring in equity partners in the hopes that they can somehow create enterprise value in their firms, that could create a transformation that they, might, that they might not necessarily like. And that's something that could potentially have a very negative impact on the entire legal industry. Oh, yeah. I think it could hurt you know, people who are true victims that, that need a good lawyer to represent them. This structure could have a very detrimental impact on that because it ruins the independence of the lawyer. That's the best word is the independence. Right. You know, something's got to give. And if you... If, you, if, if the entire legal industry trends in that direction, lawyers will lose independence. Yeah, and be there's beholden, going to be consequences to that. They're going to be beholden to big money and investors and private equity. And you know, not, not to knock private equity, it's got its place, but it does not have its place but in the legal industry. I think medical doctors and what happened in the medical industry is a, is a, a fairly good analogy to study to see what could happen in the legal industry if this were to become more widespread. It'll, like you said, Arizona has taken this step to allow for all of us to sort of sit back and watch. Right. I do know that Florida has rejected it. You recently. Know, there, yeah, recently. I guess there was, there was some, I, I don't know exactly the procedural way in which it came to the Florida Supreme Court, but they have since rejected it. They said, no, you cannot have a non-lawyer as an owner in a legal practice. And I'm really glad that they did that. And I've read... You know, we have friends and colleagues that were very much on the side of allowing this. And, you know, financially, I guess it would make sense for, for those law firms. But if you're thinking about it purely from the uh, independence of the legal industry, once you bring in non-lawyers that can be decision makers for lawyers, you destroy the ability of the lawyer and the client to have that sacred relationship that is so unique and so special and doesn't really exist in any other industry. You know, attorney-client privilege, I wonder how the private equity uh, investor can learn information about what's going on in these cases without the lawyer violating attorney-client privilege. Because it doesn't matter if that investor is an owner in the law firm. They are not a licensed lawyer. And that lawyer ethically cannot share information with that investor that is attorney-client information. Likewise, if there is an error made or something that could be a violation of the bar, how does the bar control or how does the bar discipline a non-lawyer? I'm not sure. And I don't see how they possibly could. So 
if the private equity firm does something to mess with the trust account, for instance, who is going to be responsible? Will the lawyer then be responsible for the actions of their investor? Yeah, it's really about um, providing the appropriate financing vehicle for a law firm. And I think there's different types of law firms out there. Um, they all require financing, whether they, re- whether they recognize it or not. And, and for the lawyers themselves to really educate themselves about, about finance, about the appropriate financing vehicle um, without giving up too much. And I just see from going around, from talking to attorneys and from being at all these different events and conferences that a lack of education in finance can be a dangerous thing because a lot of attorneys can be lured into certain financial products that seem favorable, but they end up giving up way too much. And whether they're giving up independence, whether they're giving up upside, there's a lot of different things that I've seen that that shock me, frankly. Well, that's the whole idea. <clears throat> so, like, if you're if you're taking it from one step to the next, obviously, like, we both agree that there shouldn't be non-lawyers investing in law firms. But there's also these non-recourse advances, which, you know, for those that don't understand what that is, it's lawyers are getting money to finance their cases or their operations, most likely their cases. And if they're not successful, they don't have to pay them back. So that's the whole idea of non-recourse. And they're extraordinarily expensive. I mean, the returns that are expected by the folks that are providing these non-recourse advances are very high. And understandably so, because if the outcome is not positive, they don't get anything back. So they're taking risk themselves. I, I was very happy to see that there are courts throughout the country that are now requiring disclosure of this. And as a plaintiff's lawyer, it's maybe surprising for me to say that because, of course, I very much want to protect the plaintiff's bar because that's where I come from. At the same time, that protection of the plaintiff's bar is not unfettered. I do think that there needs to be regulation. And when you allow a non-recourse advance to come into a law firm, it isn't that different than an equity infusion from a non-lawyer. Because then the outcome is ultimately controlled by the return that that company is expecting to get on that non-recourse advance. Mm -hmm. And if it's very high, it makes the case more difficult to settle, and it impacts the end result for the client. Yeah, I think that's why there has been this movement towards some sort of regulation of that particular product and these mandatory disclosures, because it all comes down to independence of judgment, and it comes down to... um, making sure that the attorney-client privilege is maintained. It's a sacred privilege. It's a sacred relationship. And when you start to bring in um, third parties that are not subject to that privilege or that relationship, it, it really can have a damaging effect. But, you know, ju- but just thinking about our colleagues, uh, lawyers who are searching for financing, who want to grow, who want to come up with more efficient ways to, to finance their businesses, it really comes down to education and and I'd implore upon any attorney who's considering taking in outside financing to really quantify what they're giving up and to quantify what kind of return they can get and, and how they can en- enhance their returns. Because there's some financial products that can enhance returns and there's others that can greatly diminish them. And what what alarms me is I see too many attorneys taking these financial products that actually diminish their returns. Because they're fast, they're easy, they, they and they're they're, they're non recourse. Yeah, and and I see a lot of attorneys who are enamored by this concept of non recourse, but I I don't 
think that all of them fully understand what they're giving up in exchange for that. It's a lot. I think it would be interesting to have some people on the podcast that believe that these types of rules should be allowed. And I know we know a couple, so maybe yeah, we'll get them on here. We definitely should. But in the meantime, um, we'll we'll continue this conversation because I think when it comes to law firm finance in general, it, it's a very it's a deep and it's a broad discussion, but. I think there a lot of focus needs to be given on what is appropriate ethically before you even start talking about the different options. And for both of us, I think we can agree that you know allowing a non-lawyer to invest in a law firm is it just seems unethical and impermissible. And I think in the long run, it can be detrimental to the independence of attorneys, independent of their relationship, so to speak, with their clients. I just think. Generally, and I'll go back to the analogy of what happened to medical doctors, losing that professional independence can have really detrimental effects to, to the industry itself. So thanks again for joining us on uh, Trials and Tribulations. Uh, we'll look forward to talking with you on the next episode. And, of course, if you have any comments or thoughts or suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Thank you for joining us. This episode was sponsored by Levelesque.